1: one thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care now oye broadcasting has solved that dilemma we're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole please visit oyebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, and I want to say thank you for supporting the Open Your Eyes podcast. Our reach and growth was tremendous in 2021. Thanks to our amazing guests, sponsors, and loyal audience. We look forward to bring you more riveting interviews in 2022. Now, please enjoy the best of podcast highlights of 2021. So, I want to start with, is there a difference between the brain and the eye? And is it one, is it the same? If you could explain that from a, someone who does research in this area.
2: So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the retina is part of the brain. It's the seeing part of the brain. It's the part of our central nervous system. And, you know, of course, when I began my research now, two decades, over over 20 years ago, we began our project on macular degeneration and how nutrition was, was related. Um, we've seen over the last number of years is that by measurements we do in in the retina, we can learn about what's happening in the brain. So for example, when we measure macular pigments correctly in our research facility, we're getting a measure of the concentration of the macular carotenoids, the macular nutrients that are there. What what we've seen, and this was a great work done out of Tufts University, um, uh, Professor Liz Johnson's laboratory, they were able to actually show us that the amount of these pigments in the living eye correlates to the same nutrients working and stored in the human brain. So now optometry and eye care and these measurements is, is uniquely placed to function as a biomarker of brain nutrition. So add into that, that we know that these nutrients are good. Therefore, if we can measure them, see who's high, see who's low and make lifestyle modifications and maybe supplementation to enhance retinal health we now also know that this is really good for cognitive health, cognitive functions. And our recent work, Kerry, as you'll know, has been very impactful in terms of, you know, even helping people with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, not just from the cognitive piece. I think, I think when we look at vision and when we look at what our work has been able to achieve, we need to understand what we're actually measuring. It's not as crude as just saying visual acuity or even contrast sensitivity. It's what those measures of vision or cognition mean for the quality of our life and that's very individual to the individual if you like so for example if we take a, a young healthy high performance sports athlete or someone that's in the military or someone that uses high performance visual related or cognitive related performances subtle improvements in visual functions and cognitive functions for that population is, ex- is extremely important but go to the other extreme and when we look at people and we've been you know had the great pleasure of working in the area of dementia and alzheimer's disease for the last six seven years now and when you look at what it means to patients and to their carers their loved ones the people that have the, the time with these individuals if you can do anything important to help with their quality of life well this makes it all worthwhile and i really really want to you know, empower optometry uh, to think in this way, that the work that we can do with lifestyle, nutrition and optimizing those extends way beyond that of a basic measure of visual, visual function. It's the impact on the quality of life and the performance. We're creating new standards for what's acceptable for vision.
0: Let's talk about cognitive function. Now, how can we use the eye as a biomarker toward cognitive function?
2: So, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the, one of the key measures that, that we see, you know, in, in some of the published studies, um, Professor Stringham, for example, has done a lot of work with CFFs, which we measure in the retina, okay? And this is an, an absolutely brilliant indicator of cognitive function. And it correlates beyond that of just that measure of uh, retinal processing speed or, you um, This links into attention, memory, uh, reaction time. What I would say is that when we look at kind of these age-related diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration and Alzheimer's disease, by enhancing our sensitivities of measurement, by stepping out of the the measurement of acuity, for example, and and moving into other measures of visual performance, what, what we're seeing is that we're learning much more about vision and visual performance for for people before diseases even affect them. So for example, let's take cataract as an example. Typically a patient will come into the eye doctor and you'll see that their acuities are fine, right? And you may say, look, I'm gonna let it for a year or two years. Now in that same patient, if you were to measure their uh, contrast sensitivities, you'd start to see the contrast sensitivity measures decreasing. To are being suboptimal, if you like. And so what I'm saying here is that the me- other measures of vision can be indicators of you know, quality of life, performance, or even retinal disease, uh, years before those diseases even uh, present themselves. And this, of course, we, we must look at diseases like macular degeneration and Alzheimer's disease in the same family, if you like. When you look at the risk factors for these conditions, they're almost identical to be perfectly honest. And of course, a big player in that is our genetics, but our genetics is not something we can change in the current time. It is something that we change in the future, of course. So what do I mean by that? By good lifestyle today, we can change the genetics of the future for our offspring, for example, this whole concept of epigenetics. But the point being in today's world and for the patient that sits in your chair today, you must look at what's modifiable for them today. And there's very little actually that you can change. I mean, if we look back to my own PhD, you know, which, which is 20 years old now, um, that research question was, well, what is it about age-related macular degeneration and this nutritional pigment, macular pigment, which I've been studying all my life? And what we did was we wanted to look at where, where the commonalities between the risk factors of the disease macular degeneration and determinants of macular pigment. So what do I mean by that? So when you look at a patient with age-related macular degeneration, we know that the established risk factors are their age. There's nothing you can change about that. Their genetics, there's nothing you can change about that. Cigarette smoking is a big one. We all know this. We have to advise our patients not to smoke cigarettes. But next in line is is really nutrition, nutritional optimization. And, And the point being, when you look at this, risk factor, as an established risk factor, subtle modifications there can have a major impact on the time at which the patient is going to be hit by this age-related eye disease. So essentially, you can push out the age. And remarkably, in my PhD from, from all those years ago, what we showed very clearly was that the, these risk factors, age, family history, cigarette smoking and nutrition, were the exact major predictors of the pigment. So in other words, young, healthy people like you and me, okay, without retinal diseases, when we characterize ourselves in terms of those risk factors, those who smoke cigarettes, those who had the family history of the condition, for example, and led, typically led bad lifestyles, their macular pigment levels were very, very suboptimal. And this is really important because it's, it's, it's in tune with the entire hypothesis that we speak about it's what we do throughout our lifetime that's going to impact on whether we're going to get the disease or not and that's something that i really like to talk to optometrists about because what we need to do is move away from eye care and medicine that waits until the problem presents before we do something to optimize or modify or reduce our risk of that now i know that's challenging particularly in ophthalmology where Time and in optometry where time and time is is a problem, people simply don't have it. But if we make time for this, optometry can absolutely lead the way to make changes during a person's life that gives them better vision. Today, we're gonna create a better world of visual, a new standard of vision. But the the really good news thereafter is that we're gonna reduce the risk of these age-related conditions such as macular degeneration and Alzheimer's disease. You know, Remember, if we all live long enough, we will all develop age-related macular degeneration. Um, so, age is, is 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 great. It's a great success of modern time, aging population. But it's also the biggest challenge we have. And really, you know, eye care is fundamentally key to how we can positively impact on that. Hence, why I'm really pleased to like you know participate on events like this or uh, education sem- seminars across America because. I do think that North America is leading the way, North America optometry, that you, you have your champions there that are really reading, setting the example because th- the industry is changing greatly and, and people see this and patients see this, by the way. You know, I, I don't look at optometrists anymore the way I used to, which was, you know, people that will give you spectacles if you needed spectacles because you, you, need a ref- you have a refraction problem. No, that's not what this is about optometry equals the first line of eye care and i know you know this yourself from from your great work with open your eyes and what and what's coming with, with your great documentary it's 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 the indicator and the work that we can do early on to really help our patients in real time.
0: Now if you go over the different types of macular generation dry and wet and are they a continuation of each other?
3: Yeah so um, you know, it's a good question. So the, the, really the, the easiest way to explain it is just, it's really in the terminology. So the dry kind is changes of atrophy, whereas the wet kind is where there's abnormal blood vessels that bleed. And what patients oftentimes ask is, well, do I have the good kind or the bad kind? And the reality is there's really no good kind of macular degeneration. The only good kind is when you catch it really early before it's bothering you and we can do something about it. So are they a continuum? So in dry macular degeneration, there's a number of different levels or stages that that eye doctors use to classify what level it's at. And the different levels of dry macular degeneration are a a continuum. Uh, There's kind of an end stage of dry macular degeneration where it becomes very atrophic. And there's really just big, big kind of chunks of the macula that are no longer functioning. And that actually, by genetics, is a little bit different um, and is different than the people that develop wet macular degeneration. So although it all appears to be a continuum of the same process, genetically, there's differences between the end stage of dry macular degeneration and of wet macular degeneration.
0: That's an interesting point when we bring about talk about genetics because before 1900 there was almost no cardiovascular disease, cancer, macular degeneration. So what has changed over the last hundred or so years? Has our genetics changed, or why do why are we getting these chronic degenerative diseases?
3: Yeah, so you know, has our genetics changed? Maybe a little, but probably not enough to um, to explain. There're dramatic change in all these chronic diseases that you're mentioning. And, you know, I, I think what, what I would tell you, I think and what a lot of literature really backs up is it really has to do with lifestyle changes in lifestyle that as in general, as a society, we're not as active. We don't eat as well. Um, the foods that we eat aren't even of the same quality that they were hundred years ago. So, you know, if you took vegetables that were grown in a field hundred years ago and compared to the nutrients that are, were in them, compared to the nutrients that are grown in a f- the same field today, because of over farming, there's far less nutrition in it. So it's, it's lifestyle and some of the changes that have occurred over time, basically because of that lifestyle, that's really driving these chronic diseases.
0: Now, macular degeneration, according to the studies, is really underdiagnosed. And why do you think it's underdiagnosed now that our technology and eye care, you know, eye doctors have this incredible technology to be able to view the macular in microns. Why are we still underdiagnosing it?
3: Yeah. So, you know, so you're right. There was a, a publication about three years ago that really pointed this out. And what this publication said was what they did was they went out to eye doctors, optometrists, and ophthalmologists, and said, we want you to examine patients over the age of 60, and all we want you to do is tell us do they have macular degeneration, yes or no. And then, by the way, take a picture of the inside of their eye so that we can judge you. So basically, doctors were said, all you got to do is one thing, and big brother's watching over your shoulder, so you better try and do a good job. Even with those instructions, about 25% of the time, macular degeneration was missed. So that's that's the study you're referring to and it really was astounding when it was published and so the realities of everyday practice is that when we're seeing patients we're not being asked just one singular question we're being asked dozens if not hundreds of questions you know are there cataracts is there glaucoma do they need glasses and all these things and so i think that oftentimes subtleties are missed i think that you know right or wrong I think that's what's happening: is subtleties are very oftentimes missed, and oftentimes advanced technologies not being employed to help get the answer. And so I think that's what's that's what's leading to it. And um, but it, it really is; it's real; it's a big deal. And because as we already as we already discussed, the earlier you find something, the better chance you have of having really good outcomes.
0: Let's talk about advanced technology about retinal photography, retinal imaging, to be able to pick up subtle changes of the macular. What what is out there that uh, the eye physician has at their their disposal to be able to do a better job to help find these very early changes of the macular?
3: Yeah, so Kerry, I think you and I have probably been practicing about the same amount of time, and, and the advances in technology have just been so incredible what we have at our disposal today versus not too long ago. And so where I start with that is every patient that I see over age 60, I test their dark adaptation, what we were mentioning earlier. And so for my patients over 60, that's not a choice. That's just part of the deal. That's part of what we do because I know that that's the most sensitive way to be able to pick up macular degeneration. So for me, that's number one. But some of the other technologies that are used, you mentioned retinal photography. So, you know, imagine taking a picture of yourself or of your family, what we have the capability of doing is taking a picture of the inside of your eye. And so it gives us a stationary, high resolution, manipulatable image to be able to take a very close look. And then I think the, uh, and there's, there's different types of retinal photography. Some of the different imaging units give us, use different modes, multimodal. So it essentially is able to give us different layers. So it's not just a, even though it's just a flat image, it's able to dissect the different layers of the retina. And then another really big one is something called OCT, ocular coherence tomography. And the way that I describe that to patients is it's like having an ultra fine, uh, fine-tuned ultrasound. So it's so fine-tuned that it's able to see things that are two, three, four microns in size to be able to see are there some of the subtle changes that could be from macular degeneration or something else. And I think those are, for me at least, those are the main technologies for detecting macular degeneration. Um, There's all sorts of even lower tech technologies. So even things like checking what's called your contrast sensitivity. Are you able to see things that aren't necessarily black and white or shades of gray? It's not as sensitive, but oftentimes people with macular degeneration have subtle changes to their vision that are important to pick up.
0: Let's talk about how common macular degeneration, the epidemiology within the U.S., uh, you know, worldwide.
3: Yeah. So again, just speaking from my experience um, in, in doing a clinical study on this, So in patients, I did a study of 100 consecutive patients that were over age 60 that I thought everything looked normal on their clinical exam. I even did the OCT, the instrument that I mentioned earlier, and that was normal. 40% of them failed the dark adaptation testing. So that means 40% of my patients over 60 that look like everything's normal actually have subclinical or very, very early macular degeneration and what we know is as we get older odds go up and so my numbers of 40 percent were of all my patients above age 60 and so if we were to break it down into different age groups we'd find that you know 60 to 70 is lower than 70 to 80 which is lower than 80 to 100. so i would contend that any of the published numbers as far as prevalence of macular degeneration far underreported because There's so many people that are being missed.
0: And the key thing is what can we do about it? But we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Let's talk about some of the other signs of some of the other technology like retinal photography. Uh, If you have multispectral imaging or one of these technologies that you could pick up and you could look at the retina in microns, 10 microns, 15 microns. One of the earliest signs is something called drusen. Explain what drusen is and how how that's important, not only in macular degeneration, but it also may be a sign of other systemic disease.
3: Yeah. So, drusen are these little buildups that accumulate in the retina. And so, what happens in very, very early macular degeneration is we get deposits in a couple different layers of cholesterol like material. And what basically creates these deposits is when we don't have good in and outflow in and out of the retina. And then we start getting these little deposits of essentially almost like waste material, metabolic waste. And so we get these little deposits that then start to grow. And so they start out just pinpoint, tiny, tiny, tiny. And then they start getting a little bit larger, a little bit larger until we can ultimately then see them clinically. And so these drusen can accumulate, can eventually lead to some decrease in vision, whether it's Your contrast sensitivity, or how big or small is something you could see. But again, as I mentioned, a part of these deposits are accumulation of cholesterol. So, as we can imagine, it has, you know, that has something to do with cholesterol, has something to do with systemic care. So, yeah, it it really is all related. You know, the, the blood that flows through the eyes is the same as the blood that flows through the rest of the body. And so we can't, we, are we, we really we need to assume that when there's inflammation or disease or illness elsewhere, that we're much more likely to have the same in the eye. You know, what I always tell people is sick eyes generally happen in sick people. And so if you see sick eyes, then we need to really look harder systemically and see what
1: else is going on, whether our patients know about it or not. <laughs> one thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care now oye broadcasting has solved that dilemma we're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole please visit oyebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today
0: I notice now that the catchers a lot of times will use nail polish or tape their fingers so the pitchers can see the signs a little bit better. Uh, Is that an issue where the the pitcher is having trouble seeing uh, because they're only 60 feet away, 60 feet, six inches? Or is it just because they're trying to hide the sign so much from the other team?
4: Yeah. So, um, I've had the problem of not being able to see as well at nighttime. Um, so during the day, no problem seeing the catcher's fingers uh, as far as being a pitcher. And, um, but at night for some reason the reflection of, uh, you know, everything going on, is so bright. And then, you know, you're looking into, you know, your catcher, whether it's kind of like a darkened tunnel where they're giving the signals and it's kind of hard to see it's like this dark area. Yeah. So, uh, occasionally will you know, I'll tell my catcher if I can't see their fingers, like, can you put nail polish or can you put tape like white tape so you can see? And it kind of just helps so much. Um, it's not like usually, it's not usually the distance. It's just basically on the lighting of, of the day or um, some, some lights are better than others uh, or depending on how the field is faced or anything like that. Kind of like a preference, but the the tape and everything like that helps so much for for a pitcher to see.
0: How many different pitches do you throw?
4: Oh man. So back when I was like 15 or 16, I had like ridiculous amount. I had like seven or eight pitches. I, I don't even know how I did that, but now I have four. I kind of uh, simplified everything and modified it. Uh, and now I have a fastball uh, change up slider and a palm ball. Um, so those, that's basically what I got going on right now. I used to have like two palm balls, another curveball, ball, a splitter. So I, I was was a lot and my catchers they kept up so we're kind of running out of fingers to you know to for signals we had to be really creative with it
0: (laughs) and how do you give the signal so the other team doesn't steal the uh the signs how often do you have to change the signs during the day
4: when I was growing up yeah like my dad had the most simple signs ever it was like one Mm -hmm. you know two it was like it was so simple and he'd be like this would be inside and this one thing would be outside and it would be so easy. Um, and people would try to pick them, the signs up all the time. People would call out like, she's throwing a change up and we'd be like, okay, you know, whatever. Um, uh, but now on like USA and stuff like that, we have like such a system where, you know, everything is relayed or we have like, uh, they have like sticker or bands over here where they look up the numbers and it's very secretive and, uh, we don't really have a problem with it. Um, normally ever uh but yeah growing up it was like they everyone was picking up my signs and we didn't care we're like whatever you can you can know what's coming it's not gonna hit it
0: (laughs) so so now i mean when they start changing the signs does it get complicated where people have trouble remembering you know we're in this sequence or we're in that sequence
4: um not really i mean right now um i have a catcher that i've had for so long that we kind of have like we're on the same page like all the time um so we're never really confused uh with that if we have to change something here and there like sometimes it gets confusing when there's a runner on second um and you don't want them to pick off you know a sign or anything like that we got to change things up a little bit um, but for the most part i i mean we haven't really had any problems with anyone
0: stealing them so talk to me about the mental part of the game how important how important is that in baseball
4: yeah, I mean, um, I'd say if you're not good uh mentally, you can't be a pitcher. Um, there's too much going on in your head that you need to basically calm down all the all the voices and the nerves and everything like that. You gotta concentrate on your breathing and everything like that. Cause if you're if you're too tense and everything like that, you're not gonna throw strikes, the balls are gonna go everywhere, um, people are gonna get hit. Um, so mentally you just have to calm everything down and um What helped me growing up is I saw a movie called For the Love of the Game, Um, and he he gets on the mound, and, uh, you know, it's crazy crowds, and he says, clear the mechanism, and it basically just shuts everything out. You get in your zone, and when you really think about it, you're just throwing it. I know everyone says it. Just throw the glove. Just throw the catcher's glove. But really, I shouldn't be looking to see if Bryce Harper's up against me because if I think that, you know, he's going to hit a home run off me, then he is. Uh, So basically just hitting my spots. and if things go wrong, like you have to have a short memory. You have to be like Dory on on Nemo. Like just forget about what happened. Like if someone gets a hit or someone makes it, especially if someone makes an error, because that really hurts. You gotta just brush it off and just get after the next batter. Because if you don't brush it off, guarantee the next batter is gonna get a hit and then it's gonna be a you know a merry-go-round. So you just gotta go after the next batter. Um, you can always tell like with certain pitchers, if you get after them in the first couple innings, you go, oh, we're in their head. They're done. Them, you know, bring in the bullpen because uh, you can tell when someone, their body language and everything is, is frustrated. So yeah, just basically showing no emotion to anybody.
0: Talk about the side effects of intermittent fasting as far as brain fog, energy. How does it help us?
5: So um, the, the pathophysiology of it is pretty fascinating. And again, I, I referenced Dr. Matson a lot. He describes it as, when we stress our body out just enough, it becomes more resilient. It doesn't induce damage. So it's the same concept of resistance training and exercise. When you stress your muscles out just enough, certainly we can damage our muscles if we overlift or push too hard too fast, you know, and cause tearing of muscle fire. But when you stress it out enough, the body will respond by becoming more resilient. The practice of daily intermittent fasting seems to stress cells out just enough. Where they build internal mechanisms through changes in dna and changes in protein synthesis that they become more resilient to disease now the brain fog it turns out when you are in the fasted state and you have burned through all of the carbohydrates floating through your blood from the last meal and the glycogen stored in your liver and your body shifts to burning fat for fuel because that's all that's available your brain actually works better on ketone bodies than it does on burning, super, uh, on burning glucose for fuel. You think faster, clearer. That's where most of our students come back during when they're fasted. And for most, it's the morning, but not everyone. And they're like, I'm a boss in the morning. I'm getting my work done. I've got my checklist. I'm, you know, because they just think so much clearer while they're fasted.
0: Since you brought up ketone bodies, I have to ask you, and I know people ask you this all the time about the keto. Mm-hmm. How's your diet different than the keto diet? I,
5: oh, Is your uh, diet you the that. keto diet? I get that a thousand times a day. So I knew about keto when I developed Gavson diet, roughly. I hadn't really done a deep dive. And, and I get asked how I compare to a, a thousand other programs because there's that many out there. I stay in my lane. I pretty much know what I've know. I research what I've got and don't purposefully look at other people's programs because I never want to be biased. I never want to get caught in that trap of, Ooh, that's a good idea. Let me borrow this. I just stay where I am. So as far as how we compare to keto, most keto, most, the way most people do keto, the way I understand it is really, you will lose weight. The, the data on, on fast, quick weight loss is actually really good, but it's not sustainable. You know, people have a really difficult time, most regular people in sustaining that low of a carbohydrate intake for that long. There's social reasons, there's emotional reasons, you know, it's just, it's difficult to do. And then when they add those carbs back in, they gain the weight back plus then some. So it's really hard to sustain your inflammation levels. The way most people practice ketosis will go up dramatically because you are, you are not feeding your body with the complex carbohydrates, the natural anti-inflammatories, the fiber, you're missing all of that. So I call it weight loss at any cost, which is just not something I'm willing to teach people how to do. So will you ever be in ketosis in a weight loss program? Yeah, In order, you develop ketone bodies every time you burn fat for fuel. And in order to lose fat, you have to burn it. So, but we don't check ketones. We don't care if you're in ketosis. That is not the goal of our program. And a lot of people confuse fasting with ketosis. You may hear from Dr. Fung or other people, and I'm not knocking what he does. I did read his book, The Obesity Code. Um, You may knock yourself out. You may not knock yourself out of ketosis if you do 50 calories or add this to your coffee or whatever, but you will break your fast. And we focus on fasting, not ketosis in our program.
0: You brought up before a cheat day. A lot of bodybuilders, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, their Sunday will be their cheat day and eat pizza or whatever they're going to eat uh i find that if i do that with with myself and a lot of my patients what happens is it breaks they become addicted again to these foods so it's not so much that if they eat it once in a while it's bad it's just that they're addicting these foods and then they become re-addicted to the foods uh, explain why you think that a I- doesn't work
5: I absolutely agree. I, I, one is, you know, my daughter is studying to become a registered dietitian right now. She's in, in university for that. And, you know, she talks about mama, food does not have a morality. You know, they learned that in, in their, in, their, in their, her undergrads in nutrition science. She said, you know, food is not good or bad. Certainly food is more nutritious or less inflammatory or whatever labels we put on it. But when we put the good and bad label and you're allowing yourself to eat bad food, that becomes an emotional thing with food. And like you said, you become re-addicted. And so, you know, we don't allow our students to beat each other up when they make a more inflammatory choice. We just say, every day's a new day, start over. Look, at, you know, we also address the emotional components of this. Like, look at the reasons why you did that that day. We're not, you know, you're not allowing yourself to do this or that. You're an adult making a decision that you feel like is best for you. And, you know, we often, all of us, me included, fall back on old, habits and behaviors when, when things get rough and, you know, tomorrow's a new day when you slash a tire, no, wait, when you get a flat tire, don't slash the other three is what I tell people. And what I find when you allow yourself a cheap day, when you're giving yourself permission to make inflammatory choices, then you are slashing the other three tires rather than just one from one bad day.
0: So a lot of people feel that you should eat every two hours. That was popular for a while. And I think some bodybuilders feel that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the difference between eating every two hours and doing intermittent fasting? And what's the downside of eating every two hours?
5: Um, I, I don't, I really, it's hard for me to speak to the downside of it. I was, you know, in medical school, we talked about that being a good thing, but it turns out there really aren't many studies to support that that, you know, it was a good idea. It seemed to make sense, but we didn't really have studies that showed that that was really helpful in a whole lot of ways. Um, So the thought process was it kept your blood sugar stable. You didn't have the drops, but really the most effective way to drop your blood sugar is to eat a lot of processed and simple sugars that dramatically raise your blood sugar quickly and cause a compensatory immediate rise in insulin, which then bottoms you out. And so fasting gets rid of this when we look at the data coming out of um there's a, a great study where they looked at they were obese um pre-diabetic i believe um patients who were put on isocalometric diets so they were matched groups were matched male female age weight whatever two groups group a was put on intermittent fasting so they ate the exact same thing in an eight hour window and then the other P group was eat on demand and they measured multiple things The weight loss was similar, maybe a little bit more in the fasted group, but fasting is not a great way to lose weight. You know, it's great for inflammation, but not so much for weight loss because you can eat a lot and a lot of bad stuff. (laughs) I said the bad word. Here I go. Um, You eat a lot of inflammatory things in your window, but they were eating the exact same thing. The fasted people had decreasing systemic inflammation levels. You know, they and um, they also had um, decreased abdominal circumference, so their visceral fat levels were lower than the people who ate on demand. So it's the practice of fasting in itself that will help lower your systemic inflammation levels. And they think because your insulin levels are lower and your fasting glucose levels are lower when you practice fasting. Um, That's theoretical, that hasn't been proven yet. Um, And that your, um, same thing, the visceral fat is directly related to your systemic inflammation levels. When you lower that, you stop driving so much fat to the viscera.
0: Talk about inflammation. That's the second part of your your program. Mm -hmm. Why is inflammation bad? And what can we do to keep inflammation low?
5: So chronic inflammation is kind of like high blood pressure, you know, you don't, unless it's super high, you have no idea you have it, you're just walking around living your life doing your thing. But the it's and it's just chipping away your organs. Um, chronic inflammation does the same thing. You really don't feel that bad when you're chronically inflamed. You would just have a general sense of unease. This is kind of achy or just not feeling exactly right, but you can't put your finger on it kind of thing while it is wreaking havoc on your end organ system slowly but surely. Things that you can do, you know, to lower chronic inflammation are almost all nutrition-based and stress-release. So cortisol is a huge driver here and to lower cortisol, almost every way to do it is anti-inflammatory nutrition and things that relieve stress in your body Um, meditation journaling you know whatever works for you going for a walk talking to a friend it's a little bit different for everyone but really it's all the self-care me time it's huge it's chem, it's biochemical and it really does help Um, the other is Filling your body with things that naturally fight inflammation. In the Galveston diet, we talk about eating the rainbow, trying to eat as many colors as possible because each of those colors represents a different phytochemical that is a natural anti-inflammatory or antioxidant. So anthocyanins in colorful fruits and vegetables, lignans in fruits and uh, nuts, Um, and really avoiding the things we know cause inflammation, nitrites, artificial colors, artificial flavors and processed carbohydrates are some of the most pro-inflammatory things that we can put in the body.
0: And how about omega-3s? Are they helpful?
5: Yes, they're very helpful. And Americans just aren't getting enough of them. Um, the way most people eat in the Western world and Western diet is a diet that's really rich in omega-6 fatty acids. And we do, there. that's an essential fatty acid, we do need it, but we're eating probably 20 times more than we should be um, because so much of the processed foods has corn oil or soybean oil, which is super high in omega-6. So we're getting way too much of that. Omega-3s, we're not eating a lot of fish. Um, daughter uh we're not eating a lot of the fatty fish we're not eating a lot of the flax and the chia seeds and the things that are rich in omega-3 so at the cellular level um the cell membranes are made up of um the, the omega-3s can basically get deposited in the cell wall um, as a phospholipid and the body, when it's going through its processes, just pulls whatever ph- phospholipid is available and breaks it down. So if you're eating a diet rich in omega-6, you have more of that deposited in the cell wall, more, more available as a substrate. And so when those broken down, the breakdown products of omega-6 in excess are pro-inflammatory, whereas the breakdown of omega-3s are anti-inflammatory.
0: What kind of protein do you recommend that people eat? Can they eat grass-fed steak? Do you re- is that on your yeah. program? Yeah, so
5: whatever works for you. If you have a personal preference, um, you know certainly we know that um, shellfish and fish can be more anti-inflammatory, mostly because of the richness in omega-3. Um, but you know everything in moderation. And, and in Galveston Diet, we talk about when we're making protein choices that are animal-based. Let's look at the saturated fat. Okay. So lean is a little bit better because you have less saturated fat. Not that all saturated fat is bad. but You need to balance your saturated with your unsaturated fat. You need to be eating more. Our goal is just try to get more unsaturated than saturated fat. You know, in our house, we enjoy beef, fish, chicken, you know, um, some pork here and there. Um, but really we're always balancing that with olive oil, with nuts, with seeds, with, you know, omegas, um, as much as we can.
0: Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat.
3: It's natural y es
4: un buen producto.
0: Every time I go back to school my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You
5: products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry I like to wash them with Safe For You.
2: And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me
0: and you.